everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of the Genre Equality Podcast on the Genre Equality Channel. I'm Hitzer. I'm Isa. Uh, Happy New Year, y'all. It's Happy 2022. Um, so, we are covering all the stuff that came out in December, and it's probably one of the biggest episodes of 2021 slash 2022. It kind of falls in the middle there. What is the number one topic that you want to talk about, Isa? And I think we all, all of our <laughs> listeners... And both you and me have the same idea about what is this? Yeah, yeah. We are definitely going to break down probably Marvel's biggest movie of 2021. Um, well, Marvel slash Sony. Um, yeah. Yeah, so we're going to do Spider-Man No Way Home. Um, mm. As well as another um, su- surprising, I think, for me at least, Marvel franchise that uh, ended out the year pretty well. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I'll be talking about stuff like Agretsuko, which just adds season 4. Yep. I will both be talking about Matrix Resurrections, the fourth entry into Lana Wachowski's Matrix franchise. Uh, I shall be talking about two big mm-hmm. fantasy shows that recently came out. Uh, first one is the second season of The Witcher oh, yeah. on the Netflix, and then the first season of mm-hmm. The Wheel of Time, which came out on Amazon, right? Amazon? Yeah, was Amazon it Apple? Prime. Amazon, yeah. yeah. yeah uh, Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have, you know, besides that, we'll, we'll cover all the smaller, quote-unquote smaller shows and, and movies that came out over all the streaming services like, over the Christmas period. Uh, but let's begin with the thing that we all want to talk about, Spider-Man No Way Home. Um, Once-in-a-lifetime comic book films used to be pipe dreams for, <laughs> for most studios and for most fans. Yet, yeah. here's Marvel kind of showing off the fact that they do once-in-a-lifetime shit, once or twice a year. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if this is, like, the best Spider-Man movie ever, yep. but I, I still maintain that the best live-action Spider-Man movie is Spider-Man 2, Sam Raimi's. Yeah. But this is certainly the most Spider-Man movie ever, uh, at least in live-action form, because we know Spider-Verse was, you know, infinitely more Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Um, but for months now, the, the hype surrounding Spider-Man No Way Home has been inescapable, Ever since the massive cliffhanger ending of uh, 2019's Spider-Man Far From Home, where the MCU version of J. Jonah Jameson, by, uh, played by J.K. Simmons, um, both framed Spider-Man for the death of Mysterio and simultaneously revealed his identity. Mm. Uh, it's no spoiler to say that those questions are answered fairly quickly in the first act of No Way Home. Peter is wanted by the police. His cover is blown. The world, uh, you know, his world is turned upside down. Anmi, Ned, and MJ are also caught in this whirlpool of controversy and bad publicity as it threatens to overtake their normal lives. So Peter does a desperate thing. He asks Doctor Strange to cast a spell that will make everyone forget that Peter is Spider-Man. But Peter realizes halfway through the process that he doesn't want everyone to forget, mainly the three, <laughs> the, the three people I just mentioned. And his attempt to get Strange to change the spell midstream opens up a crack in the universe. Um, though that crack, uh, through that crack, you know, comes an assortment of villains who are complete strangers to our Peter Parker, this Peter Parker. Yep. But well known to fans of the Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield eras of Spider-Man, uh, they include Doctor Octopus, played by Alfred Molina, Electro, reprised by Jamie Foxx, Sandman, played by Thomas Hayden Church, uh, the Lizard, uh, Rice Evans, and uh, most ominously of all. The greatest Spider-Man villain of all time in the oh, comics, yeah. Norman Osborn, uh, once again reprised by Willem Dafoe. Um, 
So that's the basic setup for the movie. We won't uh, delve into um, spoilers that are not already revealed in the trailers for the first portion of the review. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the second half of the review, we'll, we'll delve deep into the spoilers and discuss them all. Uh. But what are your like non-spoilery thoughts of Spider-Man No Way Home now that you've seen it? Well, wrapping up the trilogy, well, the first trilogy at least it seems, of, of uh, Holland's Spider-Man, um, yeah. I think by far, he is my favorite Spider-Man, right? His mm-hmm. version of it is my favorite Spider-Man. I think like he plays the young Peter Parker role to kind of a T, right? He looks the part. Um, he kind of nails like the witty banter, kind of like the offshoot comments, uh, but as well as all the all the problems that come with being a superpowered teen, right? Which is an integral part of the early Spider-Man story. Uh, it's something that I think he captures very, very well, right? Something that I think was done a lot better than what Maguire did or what Garfield did. Um, because they, uh, the, the two other actors were definitely much older, I feel, right? And when yeah. they, they, they brought about a much older feeling Parker as opposed to mm. what we got with with um, with Tom Holland. So now having seen three movies there, plus all of his appearances in, you know, Endgame and, and Avengers movies and so on. Yeah. Uh, I think I can safely say with No Way Home, it being the most Spider-Man Spider-Man movie that we've ever got. That uh, live action. Of, yeah, live action. Yeah. Um, Holland is definitely my favorite Parker to date, for mm. sure. Uh, it has been an interesting ride, and while I I do feel in general, um, the the quality of the Spider-Man movies that we've gotten have been good and like far above average, but I I don't think they've been great. Uh, but I do feel that with No Way Home, it is touching greatness because they swung big, took big risks uh, and managed to deliver on both the things that were promised and still surprised the audience members at the same time. Uh, mm. MCU is uh, um, setting things up. Again, yet again, right? So now that we're going into a whole new phase and all of that, all of um, the franchises that have been out this year have been pretty much like set up for what's going to be happening over the next five years or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this has definitely been their biggest swing so far and I do feel like they knocked it out of the park. Yeah, yeah. Um, the best part of the movie to me wasn't so much the big surprises or the shocking twists or the cameos. It is the dilemma that arises for Peter in, in No Way Home. It mm-hmm. is a conundrum straight out of a classic Spider-Man comic book. You know, oh, yeah. while, <laughs> while hunting this, this villains down, Peter decides to do the right thing instead of the easy thing. And yep. his actions have ramifications for him and his loved ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it puts this teenage version of Peter Parker through the ringer like never before in the Home Trilogy. It, it takes a while for Spider-Man Away Home to get to the heart of the matter. But once oh, yeah. the movie hits, hits the crux of Spider-Man's conflict and raises both the stakes, um, No Way Home becomes something of an epic. Um, despite the fact that there's so much we can't talk about here in the spoiler-free section, we can yeah. still find plenty of dead bits to discuss because there's truly never a dull moment in No Way Home. Mm-hmm. Um, here's what's great. The dilemma is great. The dilemma is the best part of the film. Yeah. The performances are great across the main cast. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, surpri- uh, the surprises are fantastic, I think. Um, the cameos are each great bits of crowd-pleasing fan service. That's oh, the best yeah. I can say without spoiling it. <laughs> um, Willem Dafoe nails everything he does, but his reprisal of Norman Osborn 
uh, is something for the MCU history books. Oh yeah. Uh, his cackle, his maniacal facial expressions are all great. Uh, they, they're back again. He's the best Norman Osborn. Um, sorry to James uh, Franco who played the other Green Goblin. Um, <laughs> the involvement of Doctor Strange, uh, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, really helps to drive home the age difference between Pete and the rest of the Avengers. Um, yeah. Peter makes childish choices because he is a child. Um, mm-hmm. There are there's real ambition in the movie's scope that's thrilling. Um, the action is terrific, although not the best I've seen from the MCU. And yeah. But emotional stakes are where the movie truly um, captures you. It is very high. The emotional stakes are super high. Yes. There is a truth at the center of the movie that's true for every great Spider-Man story. That is that the character is primarily defined by his response to unimaginable loss, mm-hmm. to monumental tragedy. The whole, with great power comes great responsibility and all that. And here, when we see the character both break down and grow up, it is genuinely affecting and also genuinely surprising because, you know, when Homecoming and Civil War came out, we were under the impression that the MCU was just skipping over Peter Parker's origin story because we were also familiar for it. Mm -hmm. Little did we know that they were going to spend six appearances and three of his own movies setting up a brand new origin story that yep. inverts the Uncle Ben and me dynamic uh, into something new and fresh. Yes. Um, because, you know, what we've gotten up to now is a fairly entitled Peter Parker. Peter Parker, like, the, who is Tony Stark Jr., who has mm-hmm. all this money, who has uh, an unparalleled support system that we've never seen any of the other Peter Parkers have. Yep. What this movie does is strip him down to vintage Spider-Man. And I'm rather amazed that they've, they've developed um, a fresh spin on his origin story. Um. Yeah. I mean, bef- before we cap off the the non spoiler section, uh, give me your overall thoughts, and then we'll give a rating, and then we'll we'll dive into the spoiler section. Now. What are your overall thoughts? I had a lot of fun with this. I think. Um. I, I do agree with you that between No Way Home and Spider Man Two, uh, mm-hmm. the Sam Raimi one, like it definitely both of them in my mind at least like compete for the greatest Spider Man movie that we've ever gotten live action. Yeah. Right. Um. And I, I had a ton of fun with this. There were a lot of criticisms about them trying to do too much. But again, you know, that is a perpetual Marvel problem mm. uh, here. And then on top of that, like layering on like Sony's kind of like wants and desires to feed off of this into their own, you know, whatever universe we want to call it now. Um, yep. It's understandable. But I feel like having a movie like this in which you know, there are cameos, that you are bringing all these multiversal things together, you are referencing, like, villains from past franchises and things like that. Mm-hmm. The fact that it still ama- uh, 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 manages to deliver a onward, um, uh, a forward movement in mm-hmm. the plot and the story, together with high emotional stakes and uh, some not somewhat rewarding. It is rewarding, but not in a way that most people expect it to be, right? Like, there's a satisfaction from watching this movie while doing all of those things. I think it's an achievement in and of itself. So, yes, I really enjoyed No Way Home. Uh, yeah. It was fun. Um, it's not a perfect movie, for sure, right? Mm. Even among the Marvel movies, it's not great level, in my opinion, but it's pretty damn close. Uh, I'm going to give it a solid 8 out of 10. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, overall for me, you know, with the insane surprises, the callbacks, the, the character beats that pack an emotional wallop, um, it's more than enough to overcome its shortcomings to deliver, mm-hmm. um, I think, easy to say, the best MCU movie of the year. Um, oh, yeah. 
um, definitely the most profitable MC movie of the year in the age <laughs> in the age of COVID with thirty percent, you know, um, you know, with the spaced out seating and everything for it to hit one billion dollars already in ten days. Um, <laughs> and the movie hasn't even opened in China yet, mind you, which is a huge market. Yeah. Um, it's it's already getting endgame numbers for a movie that is not endgame. Um, it's it's madness. If, if there is a downside, is is what you already said. It's it's a little too jam packed. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, probably my biggest flaw with the film is the same flaw I have with the three Spider Man films, uh, the the home trilogy, is that I think John Watts is a really serviceable filmmaker. Yeah. Um, there is nothing special about his visual palette. Uh, and the filmmaking is rather rote. You know, visually, it's not. It doesn't pop like in the way that Ryan Coogler does it and and oh, yeah. Zhao does it and stuff like that. You know, so yeah, yeah. John Watts is okay. He feels like a TV film, uh, a TV director. But you know, otherwise, it's great. I'm giving it an eight out of ten. Excellent. Uh, let's delve into the spoiler sections. Uh, let's take it chronologically. The first, <laughs> the, uh, 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 let me give you all a warning. I already yeah. said spoilers. You know, yeah. five, four, three, two, one. Okay, we're delving into this chronologically. When Peter is stuck with his legal troubles, mm-hmm. um, the MCU's most famous lawyer, no offense to uh, She-Hulk, uh, yeah. comes to his aid in Charlie Cox's Daredevil, oh, who yeah. becomes his uh, public defender. Um, this... For all intents and purposes, I think I'm fr- I'm fairly sure is not Netflix's Daredevil. He is the MCU Daredevil played by the same actor, but they mm-hmm. are different characters. You know, yes, um, the multiverse and everything. Um, Matt Burdock sh- shows up uh, for a very short cameo that honestly does nothing except you know get you hyped and excited <laughs> that that Charlie Cox is back. Uh, yeah. What do you think about the the Daredevil cameo, the Matt Murdock cameo? I, I think if if there was one actor that we we needed to bring over from Netflix's kind of defender um, shebang, it definitely would have been Charlie Cox, right? Mm. Uh, I don't think that any future inclusion of him in the MCU will take on as dark of a tone as we got with Netflix. Mm. Uh, but I'm curious to kind of see that, right? Like, uh, Daredevil Spider-Man is a very unique and iconic duo pairing for street-level fighters in New York. Uh, and that has always been something that I've enjoyed in the comics. Um, from that small snippet, you can kind of see what the dynamic could possibly be for future team-ups. I'm excited to see where that goes in particular. Uh, yeah. But yeah, like he, he definitely has felt the part, right? For the majority of his Netflix... Um, outing as Daredevil. Um, I'm curious mm. to see how different they're going to make it. It doesn't feel like it's too different. Just from the, I don't know, like minute and a half or two minutes of screen time that he actually has. Uh, yep. But it was just a very effective way to <clears throat> promise something into the future, get fans excited. We had some cheering and, and uh, clapping when he appeared on screen in mm-hmm. our particular showing for that. Uh, but yeah, it's a very kind of smart thing. I think like Marvel continues to be spot on with their casting and even like big decisions like this, which I think a couple of years ago may have been seen as controversial or debatable. Like it makes total sense now, right? Like Marvel has become much bigger with all the TV shows that have been released this year, much bigger. Um, now putting um, the actual TV arm under Feige's wing. Uh, mm-hmm. makes a huge difference to the kind of moves that he can make and he's making mm-hmm. very big moves not just for Spider-Man as we've seen in this one but also in uh, Hawkeye which we'll be talking about later 
Um, where does Matt Burdock show up next, do you think? Um, he, there is... There, okay, so Marvel has announced their slate of... Phase 4, um, yeah. Phase 4. And there's no Daredevil included in that. Nope. I do think that this is the first time we are going to see a TV main character show up in the movies from time to time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I the, the, the slate for the movies have been announced, uh, yep. but I don't think the full slate for the TV shows have been announced. So I would not be surprised if we got him in She-Hulk, which is the next... Uh, She-Hulk is next year, right? Yeah. Yeah, so most probably She-Hulk, right? Like public defenders, uh, not public defenders, mm-hmm. like lawyers coming together. Uh, that's mm-hmm. most likely going to be the case. I don't think they're going to branch out into his own thing yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I expect to see a lot of cameos from him around, you know, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, public defenders is a great like legal team up uh, crossover. Uh, yeah. You know, like to, to to kind of make fun of Netflix's defenders, where like yeah. just Daredevil and She Hulk team up to defend someone in a court of law, uh, a yeah. few good men style. Uh, public defenders, uh, do it Netflix. Do a do an Aaron Sorkin legal. Uh, uh, oh, sorry, yeah. Disney Plus. Yeah, Aaron Sorkin legal drama on Disney Plus. That'd be great. I would. Do, uh, yeah. I would definitely watch that. Like both Charlie Cox and Tatiana Maslany sitting yeah. around talking in the, in yeah. their office, a lawyer office. Down, I'm down for that. Um, yeah, uh, She-Hulk, you're right, is probably the best option alongside probably the Echo series that is uh, announced. Ooh, uh, yes, that's Primarily right. because I think they, they share um, a common villain, uh, which we'll be talking about later. Uh, okay, mm-hmm. next big spoiler <laughs> is uh, the death of Aunt May. Uh, what do you think about that? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I think it's definitely a very different take. Um, yeah. For sure, like you were talking about the whole inversion of the Aunt Ben, kind of Aunt May uh, mm-hmm. dynamic with, with Peter, right? A lot yep. of the time, the origin story, whether we go all the way back to like the 90s animated series, right? For Spider-Man, mm-hmm. or any of the origin stories that we got with uh, Amazing Spider-Man 1 and Spider-Man 1, uh, I think that it was a very different tone to the whole appeal to Spider-Man's morality right like or, or, or his ethical goodness so to say right uh for yep. for both um for all the uh, uh uncle ben iterations it came from kind of a place of like authority over over a young parker it's like this mm. is what you're supposed to do he gets reminded of it because uncle ben dies right but yep. in this yep. particular case i think they set it up much earlier from her death you know um, the yep. appeal to his goodness, like his innate goodness and the, the appeal to doing what is right when you mm-hmm. are gifted with the powers to do so uh, happens much earlier in the movie and the death then drives home the point. It's not one of like, you know, uh, I'm I'm your caretaker and all of that. You need to listen to me. With great power comes great responsibility. You will grow to understand that. Uh, we follow along the journey here when she makes the appeal very early on. Uh, mm. And it, it is hit home by her death because even um, you know with her dying breath like she's reinforcing the fact that they did what was right right at the cost of her own life at the loss of Aunt May I am very sad to see Marissa Tomei go honestly Uh, I I think she brought a very interesting kind of spin to the Aunt May dynamic apparently she had even more changes in mind for that that kind of of got uh, left out 
Um, you know, but we won't be seeing any more of her, and I'm a bit sad about that. Uh, I'm interested to see how that kind of affects Happy later on in where wherever it pops up because you know everything's connected. Um, yep. now, um, yeah, yeah, I think it was. I don't know if it was necessarily the most effectively sold death scene for me, mm. right? Um, I'm not really sure if that felt. I think contextually because it was. You know, um, just after combat, like it's heightened uh, adrenaline and all that. I'm not sure if it kind of really hit home necessarily that particular scene uh, with any of the un- Uncle Ben deaths, uh, because mm. those are all like quiet, somber moments of mourning. Mm. Um, but I think this is definitely a, a pattern that we've already seen with the the home trilogy, right? The same goes with any sort of uh, death, like uh, Stark's death. Likewise, in the moment, no time to mourn. Right, um, you know, and that kind of like contemplation and the action and consequence that comes across from someone's death gets played out later. So I'm curious to see how that kind of works out. Right, um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So that that's as far as it goes from for my thoughts on Anme. Yeah, um, Peter's reaction to Anme's death, you know, um, as short as it was, you know, the the moments on the rooftop, him crying, him not pulling his punches, him yeah. wanting to tear Norman Osborn apart, despite what Anme said. Um, it felt like his reaction was the best response that the movie could give Anme's death. You know, yeah. him in the climax, just tearing apart uh, Green Goblin. Uh, him not pulling his punches anymore. And sometimes you forget that Spider-Man is very, very strong. Oh, yeah. Uh, he, he he looked like the scariest version of Spider-Man that could be, you know, the direct in grief Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, was, there was a great moment that Tom Holland played. Um, of course, you know, the big ones, the big spoilers that... Uh, seriously, like another warning, if you don't want to know, like get out of here right now. Um, Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield are back as the various yeah. Spider-Men... Uh, called upon by Ned uh, using his new magic powers and his lingering, um, <laughs> jumped over into the MCU universe. Toby and Andrew are back. Uh, what do you think about the not so surprising, but at the same time still shocking in the moment? Moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, oh man, things things have been running around the rumor mill for years, right? Ever since they kind of like announced the multiversal thing. Uh, so it's not at all surprising that Marvel would do that. I think the way that they introduced it was interesting, right? Uh, we we don't get them to what two thirds into the movie. Yep. Yeah. Um. I, I love it. I love it. I think it's fascinating. I I think that at, at least for me, because Spider Man was one of kind of my first forays into the Marvel universe. When I think multiversal, I actually think Spider Man more than anybody else because like my first exposure to the idea of the multiverse was the 90s animated cartoon uh, the Madam Web arc which basically mm. en- is like the last portion of the animated series before it got cancelled right yeah. Um, so yeah that was was a fascinating to me as a young kid just like the idea you know that there are multiple versions of our reality that are happening simultaneously at the same time so to have that in a live action, in this amazing monstrosity of of um, cinema, I guess uh, that is that is the MCU uh, made my inner geek child extremely happy. Mm. Uh, yeah, and I I think that it was a important way of both resolving 
some of the loose threads that we had from previous fran- the two previous franchises um and like kind of like having all the throwback and all the nostalgia and all the hint hint wink wink um moments that come with that uh but mm-hmm. at the same time it's fascinating to see i think uh with the three spider-men involved with the three parkers involved a a, a whole host of the it feels like the totality of Parker's story, right? In the comics, right? You yep. get to see him in different phases and all of that. Um, because the Spider-Man character in comic book history has been very mercurial, right? Like, depending on the writer who is helming at that point in time, um, they, they explore a wide variety of Parker's version of the human the human condition, right? And his, his way of kind of experiencing and going through that, which mm. are... I think embodied very nicely in in Holland and, and Garfield and, and Maguire. Yeah, yeah. Um, Toby and Andrew are great once again. It's nice to you know have the member berries there, like Dengley. Yeah. Um, Andrew Garfield probably uh, brought it. I mean, these weren't just cameos. They oh, had no. like full they had full fledged roles that were important in the story arc of our Peter Parker. Yeah. Um, Andrew Garfield was great. He brought it. And it really goes to show that the problem with his movies were not him. The yep, scripts yep. were the problem. And a lot of people unfairly blamed Andrew Garfield's performance mm-hmm. in those movies. Uh, this clearly shows that it's not Andrew Garfield's fault. Yep. Um, you know, and his redemption moments after, you know, failing to, at least oh, catching Gwen Stacy, but then breaking her neck in the process. Yeah. Uh, and, and then catching MJ here. Uh, very easy to... A uh, very easy trajectory in terms of predictability, but you know, just because it's predictable doesn't mean it's not good. It was a moment that needed to be had. Mm-hmm. Um, they, did, they did all sorts of fun things with all the three Spider-Man. You know, they, oh, were, yeah. they were pointing at each other meme, then cracking <laughs> each other, uh, cracking each other's backs. Um, web versus you know organic web shooters versus mechanical web shooters debate. Yeah. Um, all very good. Toby and Andrew brought it here. Um, next big spoiler moment that I want to talk about. Uh, concerns the climax in the future of Spider-Man. Oh, yeah. What do you think of the MCU doing an actual good version of One More Day slash Brand New Day? Oh, man. I mean, like, the, hard, the hardcore fanboys out there listening, the moment you bring out those two titles are going to start, like, ranting and stuff, right? Thankfully, mm-hmm. we don't have people sliding to our DMs or our comments and, and starting a whole war over that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was very well done, right? I didn't yeah. expect it. Um, just because of how toxic those two particular titles have been yeah. in comic book history, um, yeah. I think it was a good and fair way to uh, explore the very fascinating character arc within those storylines without all the baggage that came with it, right? It felt extremely clean uh, and probably the best way of going about it that I can imagine. Uh, I yep. do think that this also allows the MCU kind of a blank slate for the next three movies. Um, I, I'm not really sure what the deal is with Sony is at the moment, but it seems like this will be at least three more movies. Um, mm-hmm. Whether or not it's with Holland, we will see. Holland has said that he wants to step aside for mm-hmm. more diverse casting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I do expect Holland to be around a fair bit more, right? At least for a movie or two. Mm. Um, so any opportunity that the MCU has to bring in more talent to b- grow their franchise, whether it's in 
you know, having a Miles Morales come in, having a different version of Spider-Man, introducing Gwen Stacy now that nobody remembers who the fuck Parker is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's definitely a possibility and it would not be unlike the MCU to make those decisions. Definitely, yeah. Um, let's move on to the post-credit scenes. Oh, wait, before we move on to the post-credit scenes, I do have to say that with the revitalization yes. of Andrew Garfield uh, in this movie, I would not be surprised uh-huh. if Amazing Spider-Man 3 finally comes out uh, in a year or two. Um, yeah, let, let's it's just a say that, huge uh, push online right now. Um, yeah. Fans are rallying towards that. People are saying, like, I told you so. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it'll be very interesting considering that Sony wants a bigger piece of the pie, right? Uh, and and that's no surprise at all. So if it does come out, I wouldn't be surprised. I would be very interested to see how they treat this because that would probably take place either shortly before this movie uh, in the mm-hmm. timeline or shortly after this movie in the timeline. I think the yeah. latter is a bolder, fiercer move, but Sony isn't known for taking those kind of risks. Um, mm. so we'll, we'll kind of see I mean within the movie within No Way Home itself it did hint at a much darker future for Garfield's Spider-Man mm. um, so I'm curious I do hope that it's not as grim dark as I fear it might turn out to be so, mm. but we'll see we'll see Zack Snyder's Amazing Spider-Man 3 oh yeah uh- <laughs> Uh, let's move on to the post credits since the first one is is a, a kind of little cute throwaway thing with uh, Tom Hardy's Eddie Brock slash Venom. Yeah. Um, as we saw at the end of Let There Be Carnage, he was transported into the MCU-verse via Doctor Strange's um, botched spell. Yep. Uh, he does not join in the Spider-Men or the Spider-Villains yes. uh, in the Great Big Fight. Instead, he spends the film... Uh, getting the lowdown on the MCU uh, <laughs> via um, Wilder Valderrama's uh, bartender in, yep. in a bar, uh, basically just taking notes, uh, Wikipedia notes about what the MCU is about, trying mm-hmm. to catch up on um, you know uh, twenty plus movies of history and plus a few TV shows, uh, and then he gets zapped back into his uh, into the Sonyverse. Uh, but leaves behind a, a Venom goop, uh, a, a Venom offspring, yeah. uh, so to speak, um, which le- probably implies that the next Spider-Man movie is probably Venom-related, or he get he finally gets the black suit that yeah. we've all been waiting for. Yeah. Um, what do you think about this cameo? Was it a wasted opportunity, or, or did you did you like it? And and what do you think about the future of that little black goop that he left behind? Um, again, Marvel very very smart, right? I was kind of confused at this for a moment. I I think while we were, um just after while we were having a discussion. Yep. The realization that it is possible because technically symbiotes are like multiversal creatures. Uh, it is possible for them to exist like kind of outside of their own timeline, so to say, right? Which which explains a fair bit. So that's kind of like on a technical level. I do wish because I we've we've reviewed both Venom movies. I do like Tom Hardy's Venom. I do feel like the movies don't do the character justice. Yeah, uh, and. I would have loved to see an interaction between Holland's Spider-Man and Hardy's Brock. Uh, mm-hmm. Because that feels like it, it will be an amazing kind of like buddy cop, friend, enemy, frenemy kind of relationship, which we've yep. never gotten uh, in mm-hmm. the movies at least. Uh, I think that would have been amazing. Like the kind of like self-talk and, you know, the kind of banter that goes on between Hardy and Venom, as well as like, you know, Parker's like usual kind of witticisms would have been amazing. I also Mm -hmm. think that that probably deserves its own movie. 
yeah. uh, instead. But given that they've closed that off and have opened up a way to have the MCU's own version of Venom, I highly doubt that's going to take place. Um, mm. You know, so I'm curious to kind of see. Uh, we haven't actually seen uh, any mentions of an Eddie Brock in the MCU, not yet mm-hmm. at least. So I'm curious uh, how they will go about it, uh, whether or not uh, Jonah Jameson Jr. is going to show up um, mm-hmm. and, and be a part of that storyline. And of course, you know, with the introductions of Symbian into the MCU, we'll have Venom and Carnage and that whole whole shebang that comes with uh, symbiotes in general. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, Venom could have been the sixth member of the unofficial Sinister Six. It was a bit of a wasted opportunity, but at at the same time, you know, I think this movie was already too packed as it was, so it was probably the right call to have him just as a stinger uh, right at the end there. Yeah, for sure. uh, Mention. Um, Second post credit scene is not a scene. It is the teaser trailer for Doctor Strange because of Madness. Mm -hmm. Uh, What do you think? Oh man, uh, I I I really hope that Dark Strange we see in the trailer is Dark Strange from What If, right? Yep. I yep. think if they don't do that, it's a bit of a wasted opportunity because you've already done the character work in What If. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm a fingers crossed that's go- who is gonna be. Um, you know, uh, I've already been begun seeing like the sheep of Theseus myths, uh, memes running yep. around, uh, on <laughs> online. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those conversations should be should be fairly interesting. I think Cumberbatch definitely has the acting prowess to pull off playing two versions of, of Strange at the same time with each other. I think that would, that's going to be pretty amazing. Uh, mm-hmm. I do like you know referencing Wanda and and all of that. Um, but you know, like they said, I'm not here to talk about Westfield. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it it feels. I don't know. I'm 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 trying to figure out at which point or where do they draw the line between how much mm-hmm. interfacing is done between the TV stuff and the movie stuff. It still feels quite distinct and separate to a degree. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess we won't really know, um, and probably we might discuss that a bit more in Hawkeye later down um, the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the moment, it still feels like generally sure it's a story it helps with your understanding of the character as to their kind of backstory and all this but the movies are pretty much meant to stand alone um for now at least yeah yeah i think the one big exception is obviously the falcon and the winter soldier uh shola which yeah. will be spun off into captain america 4 yep. um yeah um nice to see wonder there again mm-hmm, yeah. um hoping Loki, Sylvie, and Owen Wilson. Uh, Mo- Mobius, I think that's his name. Yes. Uh, play play a part in the multiverse of madness as well. Considering v- the time bearers authority is a big part of the multiverse. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, th- those are my hopes for the movie. But I'm trying to keep as spoiler free as possible. It's probably going to be the big one next year. Yeah. Uh, yeah, very psyched for that one. And that was our review for Spider Man No Way Home. Anything that I missed out or I, I forgot to mention that you want to mention before we move uh, on? No. Not, okay. I, I just want to shout out Tom Holland and Zendaya. I think that their on-screen chemistry as Parker and MJ is spot on, right? Like, yeah. I feel a lot of people who don't care about Spider-Man and don't care about comic books will show up just to ship them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I have a... Yeah, that's, that's a, a couple of million dollars right there just to, you know, Zendaya fans will show up. And people who ship Tom and Zendaya will show up. 
Um, it's very cute and probably, in my opinion at least, my favorite version of the couple that we've seen on screen so far. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think my final thoughts is half of the villains that they use, particularly Willem Dafoe and Alfred Molina, were used very well and yes. given expansions of their existing characters in the previous franchises. Yep. The other half, not very well. I felt um, Jamie Foxx is again wasted as Electro. Um, yeah. Lizard and Sandman were kind of non-factors uh, yep. overall uh, in terms of their character. Mm-hmm. Um, the Lizard CG particularly looks worse than the movie in 2014, which is bizarre considering yes. MCU has all the money. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, th- those are my final thoughts. It's still an 8 out of 10 for me. Like, I think the, the strengths overcome yeah. the shortcomings yeah. I, quite I, a bit. I was trying to figure out like the unequal kind of like showtime for the villains, whether it had to do with the continuity of those villains' importance within their own franchises, right? Because Ock mm-hmm. is a big bad, right? And then, you know, um, Green Goblin is the big bad. Whereas the rest are kind of like sideline. Um, yep. To that, you know, Electro is just like, I, okay. Electro is not a big deal in the comics. Never has been, probably never will be. He isn't much of a character mm-hmm. to begin with. I think giving him an origin story in Amazing Spider-Man was cool. Not so much the dubstep soundtrack, not so mm-hmm. much the all of the things. But it's hard to build on that. You know what I mean? Like, you get nothing from the comics. You get something not great from the original movie. And then when you port it over, you know, it can't really stand on its own two feet. Um, you know? Also, just in general, not my favorite version of The Sinister Six. Um, I prefer the one with Scorpion Rhino Voucher um, mm. in particular. And I can't remember who was the last one. Yeah, um, yeah. It's the Sinister Five in this movie. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, there was a review for Spider Man No Way Home. Let's move on. Uh, but still keeping in the realm of the MCU, but moving <laughs> on to Disney Plus for a TV show. Uh, let's talk about Hawkeye. Um, Hawkeye, I think, when it was announced last year, alongside Falcon and the Soldier, Wonder Vision, Loki, What If, probably the least anticipated of the Marvel TV shows this year, yep. which makes it ultra surprising that it ended up being, in my opinion, the best MCU TV show of the year. Um, this is the MCU's latest Disney Plus series. It is cozy, breezy, refreshingly small-stakes adventure. Mm-hmm. It features a fun passing-of-the-torch story between Clint Barton and Kate Bishop, played by Hilly Sanfield. Uh, it's not the most exciting or challenging thing the MCU has ever done. Yep. It is modest in terms of its threats. And its threats are all very entertaining, you know, like the tracksuit mafia, which, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I I mentioned to you is like, you know, straight out of Barry. Like straight the out of Barry. And, yeah. yeah, straight out of Barry. Um, Echo, the anti-hero who I like very much, actually, uh, played very well by the actress. Um, Lalo from Better Call Saul playing the swordsman. Yep. Um, Yelena sealing the show once again in every scene that she's in. Yep. Uh, so in terms of its stakes and its threats, is modest in a street-level way that Netflix shows were. Yep. But it is consistently charming. And mm-hmm. coasts along thanks to the fun buddy slash parental chemistry between Haley Stanfield and Jeremy Renner. Yes. Um, I feel like as a show in terms of fulfilling its ambition, fulfilling its ambitions, as small as they were, and fulfilling its artistic goals, it accomplished that better than any of the other previous shows. Oh yeah. Which were which were you know high low high low high low. This one had modest stakes, but it accomplished those modest stakes very well. Yeah. Um, Haley Stanfield in particular 
once again, in every role that she's in, you know, from Bumblebee to Dickinson to whatever, she particularly steals the show and shines as Kid Bishop. Yes. And and we'll have many, including myself, looking forward to her future with Marvel. Um, with Jerry Jeremy Renner, the, the Oscar nominated actor. Mm-hmm. Um, surprisingly, finally, after what 13, 14 years, yes. uh, gets to act. Yes. Yeah? Uh, and he's aided by finally getting the material that the ca- that makes the character is interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, I, I go so far as to say that you know Hawkeye is much more relatable and emotionally engaging here than Natasha was in the Black Widow movie. Um, his oh, yeah. quest to yeah, his quest to get home to his family in time for Christmas is the kind of low stakes I really love and I <laughs> yeah. can root for. Um, and this was just a fun little Christmas time adventure that manages to be um, agreeably paced, breezily entertaining, and most importantly, it manages to reframe the most boring Avenger in a way that works, mm-hmm. um, in a way that exposes and explores his physical and psychological wounds, how his past has come to haunt him in so many ways. Plus, it promises us a much more interesting successor Yes. Similar to how the Black Widow movie's uh, best parts was, you know, introducing Yelena as a more fun version of Natasha. Yes. This introduces Kate as a more fun version of Hawkeye. Yes. Um, what do you think about Hawkeye, the TV show? Without spoilers, we'll go into spoilers later on. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I agree with you on all those points, right? Like, I wasn't blown away by episode 102, and then you were telling me because you were here that, you know, I think this is going to be great. I was sold by episode 3. By episode six, I'm I'm like easily hands down this year best Marvel TV series, for yeah. sure. The consistency that's there, um, you know, out of this world. The chemistry that's there, out of this world. The performances entirely and thoroughly enjoyable, which isn't something that we can say for any of the other series that came out this year. Unfortunately, mm. uh, mm-hmm. even though they had bigger, better cast, bigger, better budgets, bigger, better ideas, um. Mm. And I think it's just so fitting at the end of the day. Like, Hawkeye is the most human that we've seen the MCU in a long, long, long while. Right? And the passing of a mentor from more or less... I mean, Barton has some special skill sets. I wouldn't call them powers necessarily. But, you know, um, the passing of the mentor from one human struggling in the midst of, like, all these literal, like, demigods... Um, to another human who aspires to do good in the world without having those powers as well is is a is moving and touching and a reminder I think uh, that in the midst of the craziness of the MCU and all the powers that exist right there are still important roles to be played even if you aren't powered um, mm. and I love that I love the way that that gets ex- explored I love the the exploration of what it costs you to be in a position like that uh, what it costs you to make hard choices and you know um, yeah again like Jeremy Renner has never been my favourite actor but he's Mm. got chops you know Mm. and for the first time like you said we get to see that I think the the on-screen chemistry between between uh, Barton and Bishop is amazing Uh, it's everything that I wanted from it and it delivered and so much more Add on to that, the addition of uh, Florence Pugh as Elena is mm. like, that's a potent, potent mix that I did not expect for mm-hmm. what I thought was going to be a very small, under-the-radar series, right? But it turned out yeah. to be so much more than that. And as I've said before, I like it when these things have consequence. This feels consequential, right? This mm-hmm. little 
outing despite its low stakes and all of that sets up a whole new character within the MCU with her whole, whole path and Haley is young and she's going to be doing a lot of Marvel movies whenever she's allowed to show up with that right mm-hmm. um, yeah and essentially pairing two successes up more or less or at least introducing them uh, into yeah. the future of the of, of Phase 4 that, of Phase 4 that we're going into yeah so, you know yeah yeah like, so, sorry, go, go ahead. Yeah, so low stakes, but has significant consequence to the future of the MCU. I love mm-hmm. it, right? To be able to do so much with so little is like spot on. Like, I, I love it when they're able to nail it like that. Mm, yeah, I mean, the passing of the mantle, I think probably the best that the MCU has done. Yes. Um, the, the charm factor between Barton and Bishop consistently like keeps you invested in both characters and your relationship and your friendship yeah uh and uh you are my partner line which is so small but so consequential and mm-hmm. so moving in the finale yes um like you said the humanity of it um hilly stanford telling jeremy renner right at the end uh, i saw you fighting aliens with a stick and some strings you know yeah it is it, it really reframes Hawkeye in a in a very relatable way and, and a way that you know makes you more engaged with the character than any of the movies have, have done. Yes. Um Yelena and Kate Bishop having <laughs> that burgeoning friendship. Um once again, like it doesn't just introduce a successor to both characters, it introduces a success a successor friendship. You yes. know, much in the same way of Natasha and Clint, except Yelena and Kate are like way more fun <laughs> together. Uh, yeah. How would you rate this overall before we get into the spoiler section? I really enjoyed this. I'm going to give this a solid 8 out of 10. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm very close to you there. Yeah, uh, 7.5 out of 10 for me. Yeah, very highly rated. Like, most of the other shows have been giving 7s. Yes. But this is, this is like, closer to an 8 to me. Like, yeah. 7.75 if I can give it that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it is definitely the most fun watch I've had this year. For mm-hmm. sure. And, like, again, it's just consistency, right? Like, uh, we've gotten six to eight episodes basically for every TV series that we've gotten this year, right? Yeah. None of them, except for Hawkeye, nail every single fucking episode. And mm. I, 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 I can't understand why necessarily. Um, I, I don't know if like, whether it's, it's the thematic exploration of the different series that, you know, cause it to have that kind of unevenness and because Hawkeye didn't have those grand ambitions that it turned out mm-hmm. that way. But, Man, the consistency makes a huge difference, especially when you're watching it kind of week to week. You know, yeah, so, yeah, great yeah, stuff. Yeah, I mean the, highly, the emotional catharsis for if these there three is major a players. series. So sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Oh no, sorry. Did I cut out? Yeah, yeah, you cut out a bit. Sorry, like uh, we had a bit of an audio issue there. Go, go ahead with your final thought. Oh yeah, so yeah, I think if there's one Marvel series that you should definitely watch, I think it's Hawkeye. Yes, yes, you know. Um, yeah, uh, the emotional catharsis in the finale, you know, dealing with the climactic arcs for for not just his two main characters, but for Yelena as well, uh, gave you the kind of emotional catharsis that, say, a Falcon and a Winter Soldier or a Loki did not give you in this finale, which is, you know, fairly disappointing because yeah. those finales were great for setting the table for the future, mm-hmm. but it wasn't great in terms of delivering an emotional climax for its characters, which is what the story should deliver. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, which is why this is probably the most highly rated Marvel show of the year. Let's get into the spoiler section, which is primarily one section. Um, <laughs> yes. Vincent, Vincent D'Onofrio oh, returns God. as Wilson Fisk, <sighs> the kingpin of crime, back 
in well, I wouldn't say back, but he is in the MCU. Yes. Um, transferred over from the Netflix verse. This is not like Daredevil, not the Netflix Kingpin, a nope. different version of the Kingpin. Yes. But I think Vincent D'Onofrio doesn't miss a step nope. in in nailing <laughs> Kingpin's uh, mannerisms, his intimidation, the way that he just chews scenery and is so frightening. Uh, what do you think about the inclusion of Kingpin here? I love it. Uh, I mean, like, already the fact that they decided to include Yelena was mm-hmm. a big deal for me. And then, like, having the Kingpin review was kind of massive. Uh, love, love, love uh, D'Onofrio's version of Kingpin. Uh, loved it how they did it in Marvel. I mean, in Netflix. Uh, loved the fact that there was a lot of character development for that in Netflix. Um, I do feel that Kingpin is a very important part of, like, the New York landscape, especially for street-level stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, and the fact that um, Hawkeye coming out and No Way Home coming out and having Charlie Cox in, in No Way Home is mm-hmm. important. I, it does feel like they are going to set up something, maybe not along the lines of Defenders a la Netflix, but like mm. there's something going to be brewing in New York for the street level, guys. Um, mm. And I'm hoping Bishop will be part of that, right? Um, and, you know, just kind of like to cut her teeth. Um mm. It does feel, however, that the MCU version of Kingpin feels a little underpowered. Um, mm. Given, you know, what he is in the comic books or even what we saw on Netflix, like, honestly, Kate should be dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very, very honestly, Kate should be dead. I know the girl's been training since she's God knows how young, but, like, Kingpin's not a joke, man. Uh, it yeah, does, yeah. Yeah, it does seem like this particular Kingpin has, like, the cane and all of that seems like... Um, it, it alludes... To maybe like you know a showdown with Daredevil, it feels like, um, yeah, and it feels like pretty much the same character again, like what Ch- Charlie Cox's um, cameo was like. But uh, yeah, I really enjoy it. I think it sets up a lot of exciting opportunities for a lot of characters that we already have grown to love. So mm-hmm. we'll see where that goes. Uh, Kingpin most obviously is going to show up in the Echo series, which will be in 2023. Yep. Um, considering the ending of the uh, of Hawkeye. Uh, for those of you who are worried that Kingpin is dead, they did not show him getting shot. It's classic um TV storytelling yep. or cinematic storytelling. If you don't see the person die, they are not dead. Yes. Uh, <laughs> he's clearly not dead. Uh, yep. they're not going to waste Vincent D'Onofrio on a one-off, one-episode cameo. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm I'm foreseeing Daredevil and Kingpin showing up in the Echo series as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, those were the two big titles that we'll be talking about here. Don't worry, there, there are more big titles that we're going to be uh, talking <laughs> about later on. But first, let me delve into the first part of Quick Hits. Uh, let me talk about Season 4 of Agretzko. I've said this many times. Um, Agretzko, who would have ever thought that such a <laughs> subversive, yep. genius feminist gem about millennial anxiety could come from a cute anime based on a Sanrio character. And I think for the past three seasons, this workplace comedy centering around the struggles of an office lady red panda has transcended its adorably kiddie veneer to address some very grown-up issues. Um, It deals with misogyny, workplace harassment, gossipy colleagues, toxic fandom, and overwork. And our main character, Retsuko, can only cope by screaming death metal during karaoke. Um, season 4 picks straight up right after Season 3's climax after Retsuko's stint mm-hmm. with an idol girl band <laughs> and um, ended with her being accosted and assaulted by an ob- obsessive fan. Um, she's still reeling and traumatized, but is making progress uh, with the help of the hyena Haida, her co-worker who has been harboring an unrequited crush on Retsuko for five years now. 
However, in helping Red School overcome her trauma, Red School is perhaps starting to reciprocate those feelings. Um, the first half of the season is the most painfully accurate depiction of what happens when two introverted people like each other, but neither wants to make the first move. <laughs> um, it leads to resentment and misunderstanding and the dissolution of their friendship eventually. Thankfully, by episode four, they work it out. And we finally kind of get the Jim and Pam couple we've always wanted. While all this is going on, the company they work at is undergoing a massive restructuring. Yep. The company is deep in the red, which is why a sly new wolf president named Himuro is installed. Um, Himuro sees that the company is outmoded and antiquated with many of its long-time older employees resistant to IT or tech solutions, which makes them inefficient. Mm -hmm. He notices Retsuko's boyfriend Haida is incredibly tech-savvy and decides to appoint him as the director to shake up the company. Immediately, productivity is up when Haida brings their processes into the 21st century. As a side effect, though, a lot of the side characters we've come to know and love over the past few seasons are laid off en masse because they're either too old or too stubborn to adapt to a modern work environment. This leads to low morale in the office. In this, I think a grad school presents the most nuanced study of modern capitalist corporate structure. Yep. We know that Haida and Himuro are correct in what they did in order to save the company. At the same time, the carelessness in how they go about it shows us the human cost of progress, the livelihoods lost after decades of service, and without a shred of compensation or compassion from their bosses. Mm -hmm. Retsuko, being who she is, right, thinks that what the company is doing is disgusting. She's the type to prioritize people over profits. At the same time, her boyfriend Haida, who has always been ambitionless and wallowing in this cubicle job, now finds a sense of purpose. He's been lacking motivation because nobody has recognized his talents before. And once his talent and contributions are acknowledged, he finds a drive and a confidence that we've never seen. So, of course, he's loyal to the new president and the new policies. Yeah. This divide in the workplace philosophy is surprisingly the thing that breaks your relationship. Eventually, in order to keep the company looking more profitable than it is, the new president asks Haida to digitally doctor their financial records. Mm. Haida agrees to the fraud, and this is when Retsuko can't take it anymore. The entire final stretch is a battle between Haida and Retsuko, as Retsuko secretly tries to blow the whistle on not just her boss, but also her boyfriend, and it leads to some really complex emotional stuff. But as always, Retsuko manages to balance its heavy issues with some incredibly cutesy comedy, and four seasons in, I'm ready to call this one of the best anime on air. Mm -hmm. Um... It's a 9 out of 10 for me. Excellent. Very, very highly rated. Uh, next up, I'm going to be talking about 24, which is not about Jack Bauer fighting terrorists Aww. in real time. Rather, <laughs> uh, this is the latest from Singaporean filmmaker Royston Tan, who is most widely known for his visceral street gang drama 15 back in 2003. Uh, this film follows a deceased sound engineer who lingers in a mortal realm He's armed with a recorder, a boom mic, and a pair of headphones, and he silently persists to do his job and just goes around recording random events, invisibly intruding on private and public affairs. Um, I love the premise. The, the, <laughs> the very first scene is an attention grabber. Yeah. Uh, we open with a steamy sex scene between two men. Um, 
only for the frame to open a bit later to reveal the silent protagonist of the movie, the sound engineer who's recording the two men having sex. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie continues in the same way through 24 settings or sets where the protagonist is recording sound, barely visible in the background. The sound engineer travels to varied environments such as a forest, a cemetery, a theater, a shop, a cinema, an apartment bathroom, a truck carrying migrant workers, a temple, etc., etc., um, and although a master plan is kind of poignantly revealed at the end to tie everything together, 24 is mostly an utterly delightful take on a scene-by-scene basis as characters are vividly sketched mm-hmm. through glimpses of life, work, and artistic pursuits. It's buoyed by incredibly deadpan humor, um, lovely cinematography, and of course, impeccably, uh, impeccable sound design. Uh, 24 is probably the most uniquely abstract film of the year, and a low-key tribute to the overlooked overtired heroes of filmmaking who is the sound man uh, i'm giving this a 7.5 out of 10 it will premiere at sgiff earlier this month but it will be coming out in singapore theaters in the coming months in 2022 so look out for it nice uh finally for this uh section of quick hits i'm going to be talking about don't look up which is directed by adam mckay mm-hmm. best known for the big shot don't look up is star studded it's a st- satirical sci-fi comedy starring Jennifer Lawrence, Leonardo DiCaprio, Meryl Streep, Jonah Hill, Mark Rylance, Kate Blanchett, Tyler Perry, Timothy Chalamet, Ron Perlman, Ariana Grande, Kit Cudi, lots more. Um, the story follows Kate DiBiaschi, uh, an astronomy grad student, and her professor, Dr. Randall Mindy. They have made a scary discovery. It turns out that a giant comet the size of Mount Everest is on a direct collision course with Earth within six months. Mm-hmm. However, that's not their biggest problem. The problem is that no one seems to care. Um, it turns out that warning mankind about the apocalypse is an inconvenient fact to navigate. So the duo embark on a media tour <laughs> that takes them from the office of an indifferent president to the airwaves of an upbeat morning show, trying to get people to care and to explain the signs of the discovery. Uh, but even in the face of an impending apocalypse, it turns out that managing the modern news cycle is astonishingly difficult. And even if some people do care, they care for only like five minutes before they move on to the next big thing, yeah. a celebrity scandal or, or, or something like that. But scientists have such a hard time getting an ADD news-saturated public to take notice and to take action. This sounds great, right? This sounds like a modern Dr. Strangelove about our inattention mm-hmm. to climate change and social media distractions and science deniers. Unfortunately, I think it all comes across as rather toothless, yeah. um, a bit shrill and a bit self-righteous in the worst way. Um, it's a bit like watching one of those Oscar speeches, you know, where the actor spends 10 minutes harping on some issue. Yeah. Um, and then they get played off by music and still keep talking. Um, it's it's rather than intelligent insight or, or satire, this film is just really smug and self-important. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's it's one of those like, oh, we liberals know better kind of um condescension. Uh and, and it often strains to be funny because it's so obnoxious and it's so superficial. Uh, which is why I'm only giving this a five out of ten. Oh man. Okay. Okay. Yikes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we're moving on now to our next big blockbuster, which is The Matrix Resurrections, directed by Lana Wachowski, who's flying solo for the first time ever. Mm-hmm. Um, this fourth entry into the Matrix franchise is, well, without a doubt, I think, the most fascinatingly self-aware of the Matrix sequels. Oh, yeah. Um, and at this point, we basically have to accept that the franchise peaked 
with its first installment. Mm-hmm. Um, this isn't meant as an insult because it's an honest fact. Like, this is what happens when a film is a masterpiece. Yes. What can come after? What comes after may be good, yeah. maybe okay, but it's, it won't be as great as the as the first one. Nope. And what makes Resurrection such a fascinating viewing experience, though, is the fact that the movie knows this. And it makes the idea central to its premise. Mm-hmm. In fact, the first half of the film goes to great lengths to argue that a fourth Matrix is a questionable idea by Warner Brothers, mm-hmm. who are called out by name. Yep. Um, rather than give us another Been There Done That sequel, Lana Wachowski has decided to make a meta-critique of the unoriginality of Hollywood's reboot-driven, IP-driven culture, one that mines nostalgia for money rather than come up with fresh ideas. Yeah. This is her version of Wes Anderson's... Uh, sorry, not Wes Anderson. <laughs> I mean, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Yeah. Uh, Wes Anderson's New Nightmare would be hilarious and I would watch that. Me too. <laughs> uh, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which we actually reviewed on, a, on an episode of Behold uh, last year. Yes. Um, the only problem is that even as this film is railing against nostalgia laziness, it itself begins to become the very thing that it's mocking. Yeah. Um, with heavy-handed callbacks in place of anything new or fresh. Um, boy, uh, okay, here's as much of the premise as I can give you without spoiling it. Yeah. The Matrix Resurrection stars Keanu Reeves as Thomas Anderson. <laughs> this time, though, he is a game developer who has created a trilogy of enormously successful VR video games called The Matrix. Mm-hmm. 20 years ago, he revolutionized the industry. Now he's hard at work on a brand new project with his business partner, played by Jonathan Groff. Uh, announces that their parent company, Warner Brothers, isn't interested in new IP. They just want to make another Matrix and they'll do it without the original creator if they have to. So Anderson gets to work on a brand new Matrix with a team of young designers and marketing experts who can't seem to agree on what made the Matrix work in the first place. Yep. Was it the action? Was it the cool PVC outfits? Was it the philosophical and existential themes? Who knows and why does it matter? Because when you're trying to capture lightning in a bottle again, it won't work. Mm-hmm. This starts eating away at Anderson's sanity. He starts experiencing panic attacks. And his a- uh, analyst, his therapist, played by Neil Patrick, Har- um, Neil Patrick Harris, is starting to worry that Anderson is losing his ability to distinguish between reality and the fictional games that he's made. He even bumps into Trinity, once again played by Carrie Ann Moss in a coffee shop. This yeah. triggers <laughs> even more memories. Uh, naturally, Anderson starts to suspect that the narrative in the game he created might be drawn from memory, and a memory of a past life even. This is when a new character named Bugs, played by Jessica Henwick, and a rebooted version of Morpheus, played by Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, comes to wake him up again and return him to the real world. Um, what are your thoughts on The Matrix 4? <sighs> it was a valiant attempt. I think very valiant, right? I, a, I, I, yeah. I appreciate it. I appreciate. The I effort, appreciated yeah. the effort of being self-aware, the meta critique. I loved all the attempts. I don't mm. know if any of them stuck, right? Yeah. Because like I was like, oh, I see, I see where Lana is going with this. Oh no, oh no. Yeah, that's basically my entire kind of viewing experience. Mm-hmm, um. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's the thing, right? If nothing else, besides the fact that the first Matrix was a keystone in kind of like cinema history, kind of bringing a very a very specific school of philosophical thought to mm. the wider audience and kind of educating them with them, the world has yeah. changed significantly since that time. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And it feels like while they try to account for the fact that the world has changed, right, where we are literally plugged in all the time, mm-hmm. um, it has not accounted for enough change, right? Yeah. It has yep. accounted for the technological changes that have been uh, made over the past, what is it, nearly two decades now. But it mm-hmm. has not... It feels insulting, right? Because... Viewers of the first Matrix, and if you were in enough to the Matrix, you would have done some reading or at least, you know, there'll be some kind of like cultural osmosis of the idea, philosophical ideas behind the Matrix. The audience that's watching the Matrix today are far more informed and far more clever and far Mm. more critical of these ideas because it's been examined and uh, over-examined for the last 20 years. You know, Mm. so to come in with a very weak attempt at a meta-narrative is disappointing. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the first thing for me. The second thing for me is that the first Matrix is distinctly, is visually distinct in its own way. Um, Resurrections is not. Mm. <laughs> there was no scene here in particular that took my breath away, that stood out to me, that you know made me go, wow, that looks insane. Right? With all the technological advances that we've had, sure, it's clean, it's polished, the CGI looks better, right? But there's, there was nothing distinctive about it uh, on a visual level. And I, I feel that because of that, it did feel very meh. Mm. Um, I was expecting a lot more in that particular department, right? Mm-hmm. The hyper-sharpness and all of that, sure. Right, but there are a thousand and one other movies that use the exact same effect to good effect. You know, um, the slow mo thing and all of that. Oh my god, seriously, mm-hmm. yeah. It it felt Resurrections feels impotent, mm. like it doesn't know what to say or what it wants to say. Mm-hmm. Right, and in a in kind of like this post post modern era, pandemic era that we're living in, right? Like it feels even weaker. You know, because yeah. it doesn't stake a claim on any idea or anything. It throws itself mm-hmm. out there. It this this is a matrix meme, essentially, right? It is mm-hmm. an encapsulation of a certain idea that is based upon multiple layers of reference in its past. Right. Mm-hmm. And unless you are well informed with those things, that like you're not gonna get it. But that doesn't mean that the meme itself is any good. You know, mm-hmm. if you're if it requires that much audience inference and knowledge um, mm. in order for you to make that yeah the, uh, but it was a valiant attempt I guess I really enjoy Henwick's character I feel mm. like it was a waste um, mm. of that you know I really wonder what the MC would have done with her instead if she chose to go as Shang-Chi I do yeah, hope she was, she was supposed to be um, the sister yeah yeah, I mean, like, I would have loved her as that. Like, I think that would have been a big part. But I also yeah. know that she has said that she would like to continue in the MCU as part of Iron Fist. Uh, Colleen Wing, specifically. Yeah, Colleen Wing, specifically. Yeah, yeah, I love, fucking love Colleen Wing in the Netflix thing, right? She was the yeah. only redeeming thing in Iron Fist. If she's the new Iron Fist in the MCU, I'm down. So mm-hmm. I don't know if her decision to be in the Matrix is going to affect that necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. I I think like she was she was one of her highlights lah among that. I I dig new Morpheus. Mm-hmm. I hate new Smith, and mm-hmm. new Patrick Harris is a ineffectual villain. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think there are like 
some new story concepts floating around Resurrections about you know how the machines interact with the humans in the fallout of the original series. Yes. What became of the city of Zion and why the Matrix itself is still up and running after the truce at the end of Revolutions. Yes. There is an interesting in-story reason for why this version of Morpheus looks and behaves differently, yeah. which I won't spoil, but it is quite cool. Um, many of the ideas are like genuinely fascinating, but few, if any, are explored or even explained particularly well. And then, once the techno-babble exposition begins and the action starts, Resurrection tries to have its cake and eat it too. Um, it becomes the very thing it critiques. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Nothing here, not the new ideas, not the recycled ideas, not the massive action set pieces, which are not particularly great. Not even the very earnestly told love story between Neo and Trinity. Yeah. Um, as it is, it's particularly engaging, never mind groundbreaking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What I did like about the film, however, is, you know, as you said, Jessica Henwick as Bucks, who is instantly iconic and memorable. Oh, yeah. Um, I appreciate the valiant, weirdly meta approach that Lana took. Um, if there had to be another Matrix sequel, something I suspect that Warner Brothers forced upon her, considering the story that she came out with, yep. um, she tried, at least she tried something new, and she tried something different and it wasn't executed well or coherently but i appreciate the effort it's not a bad movie by any means it's decently entertaining and a good way to kill a couple of hours but it's nothing special um yeah in fact the best part of the movie to me was that the entire supporting cast was made of uh made up of lana sense 8 cast yes gave me a lot um (laughs) so yeah that that was about it i'm giving this a six out of ten uh any final thoughts and what's your rating um yeah yeah it's a six out of ten for me as well I, I feel like there were moments in time where I caught glimpses of a movie the movie that I wanted to see. And all of those moments took place outside of the Matrix. Um yeah, right? Like that the the world itself, right? The planet that they're living in, the world, actual like legitimate world building of the physical space of the real world. So much promise there, so much story there. Across the four movies, right? That's the part that has been least explored with the most potential, with the kind of technology that we have now with CGI and the kind of mind-blowing things you could possibly explore with that, it was barely, Mm. it was like, what, five minutes worth of that? Yeah. If not less. And I think that's where the movie should have been. That could have been the core of it. Sure, you want to do all the other stuff? Can. But like, the real story that's missing here is like, what are the humans doing? You know, I don't want to know necessarily what Neo is doing. I want to see what the the consequences of his, the actions that he's taken. And we only got a glimpse of that, and I think it's a waste. Um, yeah, so it's a 6 out of 10 for me. Um, it is nowhere anything near the first movie. It is nowhere even close to the Animatrix. Um, amongst the sequels, I think it pretty much stands on par with the latter two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but um, if you're a fan of the franchise and you want to go scratch the itch, then go on ahead and watch it. Lah. But I think you your time would be better spent re-watching the first one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, next up, we'll be moving on uh, to Netflix where we'll talk about the second season of the incredibly successful The Witcher franchise, oh, yeah. which is now a live-action series starring Henry Cavill. Uh, we talked about The Witcher in 2019, mm-hmm, season one. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I figured I'll take myself out of it because I, like, I don't want to kill the vibe of like The Witcher fans. Yep. It just The show just doesn't vibe with me. I don't like it at all. So uh, I'm going to hand over the season two review of The Witcher to you. What do you think about The Witcher season two? Okay. Um, so for the... I really like it. I really, really like it. And this is strange to me because for the first time... Um, 
like fans really like season one and they don't like season two, which is strange. But critics love season two. Uh, and mm. I guess I guess since we are on this podcast, we are, we are in the second camp. Mm. Um, I okay, watching season two, it took basically ten minutes into the first episode for me to be sold for the entire season. Right. And all it took was one particular facial expression from mm. Gerald, played by wonderfully played by Henry Cavill. To sell me. Yep. Like, I, there's just this one facial response that he had. And I was like, okay, you know what? This season feels different. And it is, right? So, season two is way more streamlined in terms of its storytelling. We don't have any confusing kind of like multi-timeline jump cuts. But, you know, I mean, people who listen to us probably watching Dark as well. So, that's not really such a big deal. Um, but, yeah, uh, I do feel that the simplified approach to telling the story this time round has benefited the entire show greatly, right? It was hard to keep up with the world building, especially if you're not into the games. And even uh, if you aren't familiar with the games and you haven't read the books, it's hard to keep up with the huge host of characters that are seemingly all important to the story. Uh on top of the multiple timelines, on top of like kind of like jumping to and fro within the past and all of that in season one. Season two has none of that. It's straightforward, right? It picks off where we left off with season one. Um, Gerald has Siri now, his child of um, uh, his child of surprise. Uh, and yeah, it basically becomes an extremely well thought out and written story about found family and the decisions that it makes um, you know thematically exploring things like duty and power and family and blood um, amidst a fairly complex web of intrigue and politics within the world building that they've already already set up in season one I thoroughly enjoyed it um, I the CGI is better the characters have more room to breathe, especially the main ones, right? We get to spend more time with them. The character development is solid. The performances were great. And I mean, people gave like Kevin a lot of shit for grunting and saying fuck like throughout the entire first season. I give them that much, but like there's a lot more nuance in the Gerald that we see here in season two. It is surprising mm-hmm. um, on many levels and very, very... M- is much more nuanced than it was before. Uh, okay. It is a greatly improved, in my opinion, series in season two. I think oh. like not wanting to do, in my opinion, the very unnecessary, complex version of telling a story by jumping to and fro has been uh. to its benefit. Uh, Christopher Nolan's The Witcher. <laughs> Christopher Nolan's The Witcher like times three, right? Like essentially yeah. like three layers of that. Uh, it, it feels like better TV is how I want yeah. to put it, right? It's no longer a TV series aspiring to your art house fantasy level stuff. Uh, mm. I wouldn't say that it's closer to Game of Thrones, but of the two fantasy ones, um, series that I'm talking about, this is definitely my my, uh, my preferred one. Uh, I'm going to mm. give it a solid 7 out of 10. Nice, okay. Uh, which is slightly higher than what I gave the first season. Uh, okay. It's not perfect, but I really enjoy it. And for the first time, I'm actually looking forward to season three, just because of the way everything ended, like and the, where the characters are at this point, I'm fully invested in where the story is now, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to season one where I felt like I was catching up with the story instead. Mm. 
Yes, yes, very good. Um, before we move on, uh, let's delve into the second part of Quick Hits, where I'll be talking about some of the films and TV shows that some of the smaller ones are relatively smaller ones that came out over the last few weeks. Uh, firstly, I want to talk about The Medium, yep. which is directed by the director of Shutter and co-written by the writer of The Wailing. Um, two absolute legends of 21st century Asian horror. And I went, ex- I went into this expecting The Medium to be one of the scariest films of 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, it's framed as a found footage like The Blair Witch Project. Uh, this movie follows a documentary crew looking to survey the spiritual practices of the Isan people in Thailand's rural northeast. Yep. Uh, it focuses on the life of a local shaman and her attempts to exercise her possessed niece. The medium aims to be a non-stop fright fest um, fueled by intense gore, mm-hmm. dark occultism, and a believable sense of immersion. And while it is actually very scary for a while, its long 131-minute runtime eventually makes its final stretch a slog. Once your brain starts to notice the tropes repeating over and over and over again, oh, no. the demonic girl, the shaky cam running through the forest, the, the jump scare cliches. Uh, the shaky cam, by the way, where, uh, the, the dumb cameraman in all these found footage shows like never think to drop the camera. The, the viewers, they start to kind of become desensitized and bored. Yeah. Um, at first, the cultural specificity lends the tired found footage tropes some freshness, but after a while, you start to wish that this was more traditionally film, filmed mm-hmm. so that I can actually see what's going on without getting dizzy. Um, yeah, overall, I loved the first 90 minutes. I hated the, whatever came after, so it's a 6 out of 10 for me. Oh, okay. Uh, next up, I'm going to be talking about The Silent Sea on Netflix, which is uh, adapted from a 2014 short film called The Sea of Tranquility. Mm-hmm. This is a South Korean Netflix series that is set in the future where the world is facing a water crisis which results in severe rationing, uh, so much so that the humans are now segregated by class depending on how much water they are provisioned for. Mm-hmm. Um, more water, richer, less water, poorer. So South Korea is launching a new mission to a lunar station where a mysterious mass, mass casualty event derailed a research into potential water on the moon. Oh. Our protagonists are astronauts tasked to retrieve the samples from the abandoned research facility on the moon. Um, sounds like an okay premise. Um, but unfortunately, I think the show proceeds at such a glacial pace and is fit, filled with such weak character work. Um, it wants to be... It wants to be the kind of... Pro- profound, emotionally poetic movie like Ed Astra is, you know? But in the end, it's mm-hmm. just a bloated action thriller with bad pacing. Uh, if there's one great thing about the show, though, is that it looks gorgeous. It has stunning visuals and cinematography that that redeems it to a small extent. But I'm only going to give this a 4 out of 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up, I'm moving to Apple TV Plus for a, for a movie called Swan Song. It's a sci-fi film that stars Mahashala Ali as a man with a terminal illness who turns to an experimental solution to mm-hmm. shield his family from grief. He decides he has cancer and he decides to clone himself without his family's knowledge to give them a replacement. Um, this is kind of like lesser Black Mirror and more of a soul, soulful drama acted with great sensitivity by the strong cast. Mm. But despite all that, Swan Song becomes, I think, increasingly earnest and dull, spending an inordinate amount of time lingering over tearful contemplative gazes that's too maudlin or saturated to be too genuinely emotional. Yeah. Uh, that's no fault of Marshall Ali who digs deep in this dual performance role. But 
in the end, the series their, and their ideas about technology and ethics um, isn't very fresh, and he has little interest in pursuing them. So it's a bit of a it's a bit of a mixed bag for me. It's a five out of ten. Okay. Okay. Um, next couple of ones I'm going to run through very fast. I'm going to talk about Bla- Blade Runner Black Lotus. Uh, Blade Runner Black <laughs> Lotus is a new anime series spun off from the famed cyberpunk franchise. Yeah. The show is set uh, 15 years before the events of Blade Runner 2049 and it follows a young woman named Elle who is, uh, once again, voiced by Jessica Henwick. Mm-hmm. Uh, she wakes up in a self-driving car on her way back from Los Angeles, on her way to Los Angeles, sorry, from the desert. She doesn't remember who she is or what she is or, or why she was out in the desert in the first place. Mm-hmm. Her only clue is a mysterious piece of tech that she can't unlock and a tattoo of a black lotus on her shoulder. To solve the mystery of her identity, she she will have to enter, you know, the seedy, neon-lit underbelly of LA's cyberpunk dystopia and track down the people responsible. Um, anime and cyberpunk obviously go hand in hand. And yes. This particular take on Blade Runner accentuates, I guess, the coolness, the aesthetic, the music, and the tone. Unfortunately, it's all style and no substance. Uh, virtually every single frame of Black Lotus looks good, but the writing and the dialogue and the character work leaves a lot to be desired. Mm-hmm. It is a competent complement to the franchise, I guess, but it adds nothing to it. Yeah. It's, a, it's a 4 out of 10 for me. Uh, finally, I'm going to be talking about Resident Evil. Welcome to Raccoon City. Um, Johan Roberts directs this and is the latest take on trying to bring the beloved horror video game to the big screen. This one, though, is a throwback. It returns to the night of September 30, 1998, just before the Umbrella Corporation's underground experiments wreaked apocalyptic havoc. Mm-hmm. Still, with the pharmaceutical company having closed up shop and moved elsewhere, Raccoon City's residents inexplicably still grow sicker. It's already clear that doom is on the horizon. Uh, it features Claire Ranfield, this time played by Kayla Scordillero from Skins fame, uh, arriving in her former hometown to warn her brother Chris, played by Robbie Amell, about the rumours of the impending zombie outbreak. Um, aiming to return the series to its roots, Raccoon City mimics the plot of Capcom's first two Resident Evil games, as well as shoehorns many of the franchise's signature characters from the later games. Mm-hmm. Um, sad to say, this nostalgia trip does not work at all. Uh, the film is remarkably even dumber than the previous Resident Evil film. <laughs> um, it is a 1 out of 10 for me. Uh, probably the worst thing I've seen this year. Uh, let's move on to our final topic, though, which yeah. is Amazon Prime's highly anticipated adaptation of a beloved fantasy novel franchise by Robert Jordan called The Wheel of Time. Mm-hmm. What did you think of Amazon's take on The Wheel of Time? Yes, I, I haven't read enough of the books to come at it from that direction. Um, sure. Wheel of Time oh man I felt like I've done a lot of fantasy this month um, mm. Wheel of Time is it's okay <laughs> yeah it's okay uh, it it doesn't uh, I think there is enough world building and just enough hand holding for people who, who are, you know aren't, aren't uh, familiar with the franchise to kind of like get into it um, by all intents and purposes like it has just enough, you know, um, sensuality, just enough violence, just enough shock and horror, just enough character development to kind of want to get you to the next episode. Um, but that's pretty much it, honestly. Uh, there's something missing. Mm. And I'm not really sure what it is. Uh, mm. It lacks pathos, I think. Yep. 
is essentially how I feel about it. That being said, I was going to give it three episodes. I've given it six okay. uh, in oh, total okay. just because it seems like maybe they might pull off and stick the landing for this. Uh, I haven't gotten there yet, so I can't tell you if that's true or not. But based upon the six out of eight episodes that I've watched so far, mm. it's um, it's okay. It's, it's, it's enjoyable for sure. I'm not sure if fun necessarily is what... I'm the word operative word I'm looking for. Um, I think okay. if you aren't familiar at all um, with the world of the Wheel of Time, um, it's interesting. The world building has some interesting ideas. I think nothing new, nothing grand, nothing fascinating necessarily, all groundbreaking for that matter. Uh, but mm-hmm. it, it weaves together in a pretty interesting way. Um, a lot of very good-looking casts, um, you know. But it's it's I it doesn't feel. It doesn't feel meaty enough for me to regard this in the ranks of like Witcher, for example, or any other kind of like big fantasy series that we've gotten in a while. Um, mm. Yeah, it it feels like a, the CW version of a of a fantasy show, really. Ah, okay. Um, pretty much, yeah. There's just there's just something about it that doesn't quite hit the mark. Like it has all the elements of that, but there are portions that feel like this was something made by committee. Um. You know, there's a checklist and um, the committee wants to make sure all these things are, are, are done. So all the beats are there, all the necessary features that you would expect from it are there, but there's something that's not quite hit the mark. It's it's a it's a five point five out of ten for me. Like I would put wow. it on while I'm while I'm having food, you know, and just kind of like let it play. Uh, mm. but I'm not particularly invested in it. Like there's nothing mind blowing about it. Like this ranks... I didn't rank um, Blood and Bone. Not Blood and Bone. No. What's the other one? The YA one that we got last year. Um, Shadow and Bone. Shadow and Bone? Yeah, I rank this below Shadow and Bone. Right, right. Okay. For sure. Okay. Yeah, unfortunately, I was very hyped uh, because, you know, I, I heard so much about it. I never really read the books. I thought we would get something interesting. Mm-hmm. Eh, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah, I, I would have to agree. Um, I, I've read most of the books. I've not, not read all of them. Um, 16 gigantic, oh yeah, like 900-page, 1,000-page novels. Mm. It's a lot to get through. I'm, I'm trying to work through it. I'm a fast reader, but I'm not a miracle worker. I'm still trying to get through <laughs> it. Um, I do have to say, though, that the first few books are the best of the series. Yeah. The middle, I'm going to say... Boy, the middle eight books are not great. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and then it picks up once again uh, when a new writer, um, fuck, what's his name? Um, uh, after Robert Jordan passes away, the new writer takes over and then he does The Wheel of Time again. Uh, um, well, we Brandon just, Sanderson. Yes, Brandon Sanderson. Yes. Yeah, yeah, his books are great. So first four books-ish are great and then the middle, like eight to ten are yeah. f- uh, middling to terrible. And then Robert and then Brandon Sanderson just whoo, flies it off the... Uh, like he his take on it is the best, I think. Yeah. Um, which is unsurprising. Yeah. Um to end the show though, uh a bit of sad news. Mm-hmm. Um earlier this month, uh famed gothic horror novelist uh Anne Rice passed away at the age of eighty due to uh due to a stroke. Yeah. Um he was one of my she was one of my I'm gonna say most formative genre writers. Um in fact I'll I'll go as far as to say as Anne Rice's books were the first Genre books I've ever read. Oh wow! Um, before um, Phil K. Dick, before uh, Lord of the Rings, before any of this, Anne Rice's vampire and witches uh, books were 
were my introduction to not just genre literature, but literature in general. I read them mm-hmm. very young, mm-hmm. uh, in primary and secondary school, uh, before I got into anything else. This is this is like my first love, la, book-wise. Yeah. Uh, it's very sad for me, especially to hear of Anne Rice's passing, because I'm currently in the middle of rereading um, the Shed universe of novels, the, her Vampire Chronicles slash uh, Lives of the Mayfair Witches books, which uh, cross over here and there. So they are a shared universe. Um, and mm-hmm. I was in the middle of like this long 21 book read. I'm about 13 books into it right now. Uh, and then you know, to hear of a passing right in the middle of that is very sad. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I, I guess I, I would have been sadder if I had finished my reread. Uh, and it would have nothing to look forward to. As it is, I have about 10 books to look forward to. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's it's still really sad. I think in, in my opinion, and Rice, more so than even... Uh, Bram Stoker yeah. or um, Edward Cullen or things like that. I think <laughs> the quintessential idea of a vampire in the 20th century and the 21st century, mm-hmm. you know, the centuries that we uh, inhibit, um, I think Anne Rice's creations have outstripped even Dracula as, as the modern incarnation of what a vampire is. Yeah. When we think of a vampire, we think of someone like Louis or Lestat. Yes. Not not so much Dracula. Yes. Um, and I think that is a major thing to do uh, for you to reinvent, redefine, and then make a genre about you mm-hmm. and and take away. I mean, not say that like Dracula was bad or anything, but then like Dracula is the defining vampire, right? Yes, that's right. And then you create several characters that are even more iconic, at least in the modern mindset, yep. than Dracula is an incredible achievement. Um, to make a character as iconic and long-lasting as Lestat, um, as uh, breathy and philosophical as he is. Uh, but those are the kinds of vampires that we think of these days. You know, when you when any other writer or TV show or movie makes a vampire, they all mimic Lestat. Yeah. They, don't, they don't mimic <laughs> Dracula. Uh, and therefore, she's like redefined the template for, for immortal, nocturnal narratives. Um very, very influential writer. I will say that her earlier books were better than her later books, which is not to say that her later books were not great. They were good. They just um, weren't as dense yeah. as her earlier books. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Anne Rice's considerable success with her you know, imaginative forays into the occult, especially with the lore of vampires and witches and her unique mythology that she's crafted around it, um, the focal of her concerns of her two of her two major sagas, right? In this books, Rice spins complex tales that weave through both time and space, uh, and the minds of her characters in intricate patterns that makes her works and worlds fascinating. Hmm. Um, Rice combines this very different literary genres and styles, matching together um, very 18th century romantic plots with 20th century erotic and pornographic imagery. Uh, alongside gothic settings and glittering modern cities and grotesque horror with abstract philosophical thought. Um, part of the criticism around Rice is that their vampires or witches tend to spend an inordinate amount of pages talking about philosophy. Um, mm-hmm. If you don't like that, yeah. you're not going to like Anne Rice because all her characters are very philosophical. <laughs> um, yeah. And that, that is particularly what I, what I like about her. And I think Rice's stories in the end are about fantastic beings and supernatural phenomena that reach beyond traditional formulaic limitations of quote-unquote horror mm-hmm. and delve into universal human themes. You know, the, the big ideas, the conflict between good and evil, the 20th century loss of faith in God and the sense of isolation and 
the search for human identity and self-awareness, mm-hmm. the longing for family ties and community, the fear of death, the human desire for love, power, and immortality. Um, you know, Anne Rice in typical late 20th century fashion gives voice to the marginal members of, of society, reveals the decline in religion and family, and, and questions modern values of rationalism, order, and science. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all very good. I think the best aspects of Rice's novels, in my opinion, is that she does insane amounts of research into the historical period settings that she set, you know, yeah. um, vampires or spirits or witches, you know, some of them immortal beings or some of them long-lived beings have been through the span of humanity's eras. So, you know, her, her descriptions or the characters' descriptions of ancient Rome, of 18th century France, mm-hmm. of Babylonia, of ancient Egypt, uh, of, of uh, you know, places and times that are, we are not familiar with, of religions that we're not familiar with, or cultures that we're not familiar with, yeah. are, ve- are so detailed that they immerse you in a way of life that you never thought possible. I think that's the best part. Like, the best part of her vampire mythology is not so much the power leveling and the modern-day intrigue. is when these vampires sit down, and, you know, <laughs> in much the, for- the format that Interview with a Vampire yeah. created, yeah. All her characters sit down and spend like three to four hundred pages telling their life story to another character. Yeah, those are the best parts of the book. Yeah, <laughs> their, their, or, their origin stories, and then they're like saying like, "Man, you don't get it. Like this is how it was back then." And everybody has a different idea of back then because they're all varying ages. Mm-hmm. Those are the best parts of uh, Anne Rice's novels, and I'm really enjoying her reread right now, um, especially as I get into the portions where her very distinct uh, Mayfair Witches and Vampire Chronicles books start to. Uh, merge into one singular narrative. Yeah. Um, in um, I I wouldn't say an Avengers style way, but it's kind of close. <laughs> um, it's interesting, la. Like she, she kind of it, there is a bit of superheroism towards the end of, uh, uh, it becomes more superheroic and less horror. Yeah. Uh, as Anne Rice gets into the later books, which I don't mind. I mean, you know, you heard my review of Spider Man No Way Home. I I love superhero stuff. Uh, yeah. I mean, I I really really love Anne Rice's writings, and I'm sad that she won't get to write anymore but i am quite happy that both the lives of the mayfair witches uh series and the vampire chronicles series have been optioned by amc for two separate tv shows uh which i'm assuming will intertwine in like season eight or nine or whatever you know when when you get to it um so i'm excited for both shows because i feel like the movie interview with a vampire was very good but the movie queen of the damned oh less good yeah that's good. Uh, and and the Mayfair witches have not been adapted for the screen before. Um, are you looking forward to seeing uh, this play out on screen? And hopefully better than the Wheel of Time. You know. Uh, yes, I do. Uh, I yeah. just rewatched Interview with a Vampire because it just became available on Netflix. Uh, oh, it did. Interesting. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think just shortly before they announced the passing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I just rewatched it and I was like, oh, you know what? We're talking about Anne time. This, you know, I'm just gonna spend an evening watching it. Um, mm. Yeah, if it's anything of that quality or better in a long-form TV series, I'm down. Mm. Yeah, I would love to watch like these amazing, immortal, beautiful, nocturnal creatures spend hours mm. and hours just talking at a table. Yeah, I'm totally down for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Anne Rice, I want to talk about a little bit of the movie like, since we're on the, we're on the topic of Interview the Vampire. Yes. Um, Anne Rice hated at first the casting of Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. Um, did you know that she spent hundreds of thousands of dollars taking out a full-page ad 
you know, this this like two page spread yes. at in the New York Times, and then hired billboards across Hollywood to shame the studio in in casting of Tom Cruise, yeah. explaining that he was too short, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to be to be the start. And then you know she went to the premiere, she saw the movie, and then she retracted everything yep. and in very classy fashion. Hired more billboards and put up more full spread ads. Yep. Uh, <laughs> um, saying Mia Culpa, I'm sorry. This is why I'm not a casting director. Tom Cruise is great. Yep. He is the he is the ultimate etc. etc. Et I yep. thought it was very classy of her. Like I think every writer has ideas about who to cast for their for their creations. You know. Agree. Uh, and she wasn't wrong in saying that she disagreed. But it ended up being that she was wrong in the end, yeah. And she admitted it, you know. Yeah. And I don't see people like Ellen Moore or stuff like admitting that they were ever wrong, you know. Uh, they just keep quiet if they were wrong. Yeah. But Enrice was like, "I'm bad. I'm going to take out billboards and say that like uh, Tom Cruise was fantastic in it." Yeah. Uh, and and he was. He, he was, was. Yes. Yeah. I think it's it's one of his, it's one of his most iconic roles that people forget about. If that makes sense, mm, right? Yeah. Like yeah. it is such a specific character. But people often forget that at one point in time in his career, like Tom Cruise played Lestat and he nailed it. Um, mm. Yeah. Also, apparently, one of Brad Pitt's um, most horrifying experiences on set. Mm. Oh. Why? Why? Why was that? Uh? Um. I haven't heard of this. Yeah. So he was saying that because uh, it's so early in his career and stuff like that, he wasn't that big of a name at that point in time. Um, right. It was often on set. It was often extremely cold and extremely dark, mm. and like he wasn't he wasn't eating properly or something along those lines, and he was very miserable on the set of Interview with a Vampire. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. I I if I stumble across that article, I'll I'll send it over to you. It was a fascinating read, right? Because like, I don't know. Again, like at that point in time, like Cruz was like peaking. I mean, he has a very had a very long plateau, but like Cruz was peaking, but Brad Pitt hadn't really, you know, mm. made his way to his like big roles yet. So it's an interesting, interesting thing. Yes, but Interview with a Vampire, iconic. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's fascinating that Brad Pitt like felt miserable, it, like was a, was cold, emancipated, not eating on set, etc. Because, yeah. I mean, that is what Louis is. Yeah, like yep. Louis is a miserable <laughs> creature. He is whining all the time, and I think it was. Might have been accidental method acting because he he portrayed Louis very well. Also, like yes. he embodied that character really well. I agree. Uh, one of the most interesting things with that particular character, like the first book interview of the vampire, for example, was like four hundred pages of Louis like whining about, <laughs> oh, I'm immortal, I'm so powerful, uh, I'm so sad, etc. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like what he what, what he's saying isn't wrong. Like he's a moral character who has been thrust into an immoral world mm. against his will, mm. you know, and he's forced to kill people to survive, etc. I get why you'd be depressed. It's a very depressing book. Yeah. And then, like, eight years later, she came out with a sequel called The Vampire Lassat mm. that absolutely, like, fucked Louis over. Because like, Lassat is the exact opposite of Louis. Yeah. Like, he enjoys being what he is. Mm -hmm. Like, he loves being a vampire. And then, you know, the entire plot of The Vampire Lassat where Lassat wakes up from a long um, catatonic slumber. Yeah. He was like, hey, the world is so different. There's technology now, etc., etc. He goes to a bookstore and then he picks up Interview of a Vampire and he's like, the fuck yeah yep, you know, yep. like what the, what this guy has been saying about me is totally wrong i mean some parts are right but yeah. his perspective is like clouded by his like fucking misery yeah he decides to write his own autobiography as a counterpoint uh to to interview the vampire and then like the way that the vampire chronicles proceeds as like these two immortal beings just writing like thousand page diss tracks towards each other mm. um it's like your perspective is wrong this is my perspective etc I love that. I love. Amazing. I love how she like managed to reframe 
uh, the Vampire Chronicles from the very dreary and oppressive Louis. Yes. And then the fans all gravitated towards Lestat, and then she made her next 18 books about Lestat, and then forgot about Louis. Yeah. Uh, is probably one of the best retcons in <laughs> literary history. Just like, I, that didn't work. I'm going to move with like the more fun character. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, we're not gonna go with Natasha. We're gonna go with Elena now. Yes, is, that's fine. Yeah, <laughs> oh. uh, yeah, that's great. Uh, it's my thoughts on uh, Anne Rice's interview with the Vampire and uh, 2022. Apparently, late uh, in 2022, AMC's The Vampire Chronicles will be available. So, have they announced the showrunners yet? Uh, yes, I do. I'm not familiar with the showrunners or the actors. They're all very unknown, oh. uh, which gives me trepidation and hope. Mm. You know, because I think unknowns allow you to believe the character more. In some sometimes, uh, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and I hope yeah, they cast someone. Yeah. There's no very... baggage. There's no baggage. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's it for this episode of uh, Genre Equality Forty Nine. Happy New Year, guys! Happy we'll New be Year. back uh, in January for a couple of uh, interesting episodes. The first behold of the year will be about uh, one of my favorite Spanish filmmakers, Pedro mm-hmm. Almodovar. Um, I don't think you're familiar with him, right? So this will be your first foray into his filmography. Yep. Nice. Okay, so excited to see like what a uh, Pedro Almodovar newbie. Yeah. Pedro Almodovar. Uh, and then we'll be back for genre equality fifty. Uh, lots of stuff to talk about there. Primarily the final season of the Expanse, which is currently going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think quite easy to say the best sci-fi show. Uh, that's on right now. Yes. It's coming to an end, so we're gonna give it the proper tribute. Plus, we'll be talking about Morbius. Uh, and trying to figure out <laughs> what universe this takes place in because it's very confusing. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, we'll be diving into the trilogy of books by Lee Chusin uh, called Remembrance of Earth Pass. Yep, uh, yep, yep, yep. You might know it best as the Three-Body Problem Trilogy, although it's not officially called the Three-Body Problem Trilogy. It's the books that sprung out from the Three-Body Problem, mm-hmm. iconic series of novels from a Chinese sci-fi author. Uh, plus, I'll be talking about Station Eleven, which is one of my favorite new shows out on HBO Max. Mm-hmm. Star Trek Discovery, the new Scream is coming out. And uh, you've probably already seen this since this is coming out on the 1st of Jan. But on the 30th of December, uh, Hilda, one of our favorite Netflix oh, cartoons, yeah. is coming out with a feature-length movie called Hilda and the Mountain King, mm-hmm. uh, which I'll be watching. Uh, and maybe if Isa watches, he can uh, jump in as well. Yep. Uh, we'll delve into all that in January. Uh, yeah, I, what are you most excited to talk about? The Expanse, probably. Yeah, for sure, The Expanse. Uh, there's just this thing that I'm trying to, I'm I'm trying to see if I can get access to the. Uh, they have these things that you can only watch on your phone, like these little snippets in time, and it's very Short annoying. Films. Yeah, because I can't find it yeah. anywhere. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I, I I don't think they're consequential enough. But given that it's the last season, I want to see that everything in its entirety, so we can have a a good kind of look back, you know, at the six seasons that we've gotten. Mm, yes, yes, yeah. Uh, one of the main topics obviously I want to talk about the expense is um similar to what we talked about. Actually, like I listened, we listened to our review of season five for the expense, and we spent so much time talking about what a disappointment Philip is, both to, <laughs> to both parents. Yeah. He's, he's not good enough to be Naomi's kid. He's yeah. not cunning enough to be uh, Marco's kid. Like, both are so disappointed in him. Yeah. And he is such a disappointing character <laughs> overall. Intentionally, though. I think we are supposed to be disappointed in him. So, I guess yeah. it's working. I mean, there's yeah. a bit of space, I, I think, for him in, in this season. So, we'll see. I don't know if the overarching like plot will overshadow any sort of character development as do many fi- finale seasons. Yeah. But maybe, maybe we'll see if there's some redeeming quality. But you're right. Yeah, Philip. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, man. Uh, 
yeah, uh, Philip the fuckboy. Uh, we'll talk about him uh, later on. Uh, <laughs> till, yeah. Till next time, though. Uh, this has been Hit Zero. I'm Aisa. Uh, happy, happy New Year, guys. Happy bye-bye. Year. Bye.